Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Welcome also to Chris Butler, a former Liberal Democrat campaign manager who's now studying for a PhD with the University of Manchester on how public opinion affects decisions by politicians. One of Chris's case studies is that vexed tuition fees decision made by the Lib Dems during the coalition government. So it seemed a great idea to invite Chris on to talk about that decision and any lessons the Lib Dems can learn from the episode. So welcome very much to the show, Chris. Nice to virtually see you again. Thanks, Mark. I'm really uh, happy to be here. Um, now, your research looks at how the Lib Dems went from campaigning for the abolition of tuition fees up until 10pm on polling day in 2010 to then later in the year supporting the increase in tuition fees. Um, and maybe we should just start with what your research has found about how the party ended up being opposed to tuition fees, because I guess that's the precursor to then mm -hmm. what happened in coalition. Um, so, yeah. So what have you found from your research? Yeah. So on that point, so, I mean, I was working for the Liberal Democrats during that time, as you say, it was perhaps kind of a, a painful episode and perhaps a lot of us kind of forgot some of the, the history around it. I know before I went to look at it, I'd forgotten that there had been attempts to shift the party's position um, before 2010. And what's, I think, really interesting when you when you look at that is the, these efforts were often led by senior MPs in, in the party. And they're very much kind of from a policy uh, perspective. So they didn't think that uh, abolishing tuition fees was a progressive policy. They didn't think it was the right uh, sort of priority for, for the party spending plans. Um, whereas the opposition, uh, led by activists and indeed people were elected onto the party's federal policy committee in 2008, actually on a platform of defending the party's position uh, on tuition fees. But of course, there were elements that people uh, within the Liberal Democrats that saw educa free education as a priority, so they did kind of believe in the policy, but they were also kind of making the arguments that the, the policy had served the party quite well electorally uh, for a couple of election cycles, whereas those who were arguing the party should drop uh, its uh, commitment uh, to abolishing tuition fees weren't really kind of providing any electoral arguments why it was the case. It was very much focused on the, like, the, the policy benefits of it. And can I just jump in there? Because I think what you've said in one sense sounds very familiar. Some people in a political party arguing in favour of uh, an, a, a vote from a vote winning perspective and other people arguing from a responsible government perspective. What's the best? Mm -hmm. And that's a very common dynamic in part, in, you know, not just in the Lib Dems, in all sorts of parties. Yeah, very common dynamic. But the dynamic in the Lib Dems was the reverse of the usual one, wasn't it? Because normally what you have is the party activists saying, this is the right policy, we must really stick to it. And party leadership saying, oh yeah, but that policy actually isn't a vote winner. We've got to change our policy to be more electorally appealing. With tuition fees, it was a role reversal, wasn't it? It was the activists who were going for the, no, let's, let's focus on what's going to win votes. And it was the party leadership that was much more the no let's 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 just focus on the substance of the policy debate absolutely this is really fascinating because normally kind of you expect that it's politicians who obviously you know earn an income if you like from from being elected who would be um who 
been more likely to think about, well, what's the kind of electorally pragmatic um, policy system to take, whereas activists are often kind of characterised as being more ideological, more, more dogmatic, if, if you like, um, um, caring about policy. So this is really interesting. And I think as well with, within the Lib Dems, I wonder if there's something about the kind of politicians that, that we attract um, in terms of if you decide, uh, you know, as a young adult that you want to get into government, you want to be in power, you're not going to pursue a career as a double democrat politician because the chances are slim, right? You're, you're much more likely to find your way into the Labour Party or the Conservative Party within UK politics. So I wonder if actually we kind of attract people who are much more kind of attached to uh, sort of pursuing policies that, that they believe are, are right compared to Labour Conservatives who might have more politicians who are more kind of pragmatic about approaching these matters. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I also wonder if part of it is was very much about the personality of Nick Clegg in that he does seem to have, both before and after the 2010 election, very much had an attitude towards politics, which is that if you get the substance right, so if you've got the right policy or you do the right thing in government, you can then persuade people and mm -hmm. that the sort of the communications and the votes flow from getting the substance right. Now, the way I phrase that, that actually sounds a very decent, responsible approach. And I think it's also one, if you look at his family history, that's also particularly rooted in a reaction to the sorts of extreme emotion manipulating populist politics that really scarred the first half of the last century. You know, so, so there's a very sort of respectable position there. But the, fl the other way of looking at it is that that's maybe a slightly politically naive. You know, that's the right way of looking at the world if you want to be the most senior civil servant in the country. It's maybe not the right way of looking at the world if you want to lead a political party into power because of the realities of electoral politics is rather different from that. It's not quite so pure, which I think if, I, if I've read your research correctly sort of leads on quite nicely to what happened after the election and just how tuition fees did or maybe more to the point didn't feature that heavily in the coalition negotiations for example in the, in the days after the general election so just a very quick recap for anyone who's yeah. fresher to british politics 2010 general election result conservatives were the largest party short of an overall majority liberal democrats had enough seats added to the conservative total to be able to give a very clear working majority in parliament and so talks commenced between David Cameron and Nick Clegg just after that election. So back to what your research then found, Chris. Well, so, so the first thing I kind of say, so I think, uh, so I agree for characterization of, of Nick Clegg, but it's, it's not exclusive to him. There was mm. many people kind of making decisions in the party that had that attitude. So for, for example, like if you, if you read David Law's uh, fascinating book about the coalition kind of negotiation period, it's really, what really comes across is how focused they are on, if you like, maximizing liberal democrat policy, getting into office, and how we can kind of get policies. There's very little reflection, I think, during the process about the impacts on voters, the impacts on supporters. And I think so, during the preparations for, for coalition, during the negotiations, and, and during the early part in government, it's often as though Liberal Democrat decision makers, they see the Liberal Democrats, they see Conservatives, they have their kind of policy goals, but the impact on voters, the impact on Liberal Democrat support is very, very sort of seldom considered in, in the early years. It's not, I think, until Brian Curtsy came in as director of strategy midway through, through the coalition that there was a much more kind of systematic attempt to understand 
who Liberal Democrat supporters were, how they were, how our support was being affected by decisions taken in government singularly, kind of as a whole. Yeah. And, and in that sense, I think that reflects my own experience at the time. I remember having a conversation with one of Nick Clegg's senior advisors about, you know, the whole idea of, although I didn't quite call it at the time, you know, a Corvate strategy of having a very mm. clear sense of who your people are and prioritising yeah. thinking about what do they want, what do we need to deliver in government for them. And um, again, you know, you can describe that two ways. I think you can describe that in an admirable sense of being clear what you're in politics for, or you can describe it in a more negative sort of tribalist sense. And it was really clear that Nick and his team viewed that sort of way of looking at the world as sort of divisive tribalist, not what they wanted to do. And that sense of who your people are and who you should look after was just not what, yeah, they, they fundamentally thought that's not the right way of approaching politics. Mm. Um, and there was one incident that I thought really illustrated this starkly, which was at one point in the 2010 to 15 government, David Cameron wanted to look at uh, relaxing the ban on fox hunting. Mm -hmm. And he approached Nick Clegg and said, look, here are some things I think we should look at doing. Um, and Nick's response was, okay, I'll go away and have a look at the details and think about this. When he then, as it were, went back and reported to, to others on this, that, you know, other people's reaction was, you have got to be kidding. You, you want us to be to contemplate helping the Tories change the law on fox hunting? No way. Now, to Nick's credit, then no changes did happen. But I thought mm -hmm. that was really telling. And I'm trying yeah. to give it in a, you know, in a slightly balanced way so that we can see, you know, listeners can, can hear both sides of the case, the pro and con mm -hmm. Nick case and draw their own conclusions. Because I think I just, in one sense, I'm gobsmacked that any time or attention could have been mm -hmm. given to the thought that the fox hunting laws should be changed. But on the other hand, actually saying let's look at the details of this before coming to decision you could yeah it's not a wholly unreasonable approach to life either is it yeah i think and i think one of the other kind of issues is that one of the reasons perhaps why they they didn't always kind of instinctively think about how this is going to affect the nature of the democrat support because it wasn't kind of a good understanding of it it wasn't necessarily kind of cohesive who the party's uh coalition of voters were i think what's kind of changed in recent general elections, now there's very clearly kind of a Liberal Democrat national campaign and a kind of a national message. But I think in 2010, it's not as though there was one single national campaign. There were, say, 80 kind of constituency campaigns using kind of the national messaging to varying degrees. What we were campaigning on in the, you know, in the Scottish Highlands was very different to what the party was campaigning on in, in Southwest London. Um, tuition fees, for example, um, uh, so part of the, um, uh, I think part of the uh, sort of misperceptions around tuition fees come from the fact that nationally the party had a strategy of not to try not to talk about tuition fees, right? So in the three leaders debates where Nick Clegg um, performed so well and really helped the party's fortune in 2010, he doesn't mention tuition fees or university finance once in votes. So clearly there was this kind of attempt to, to avoid it. But of course... Just, in, just to extend on that just briefly, mm. is also the front page of the 2010 election manifesto doesn't mention tuition fees. Yeah. And if you look at... I remember I went back to reread the speech that Nick gave at the launch of the manifesto. Mm. Now, he does mention the abolition of tuition fees in that speech, mm. but it's not prominent. 
and certainly to me at the time and subsequently it felt like it was uh it was in there because if it wasn't members of the federal policy committee and others would have been kicking off so mm-hmm. it was there almost for an internal party management reason um, yeah. and yeah absolutely the you know the defense the party used during 2010 to 15 clearly unsuccessfully <laughs> the election yeah. was look at the front page of our manifesto that's what we've delivered on but that's mm-hmm. obviously not how voters saw it yeah and um i think so there, there was this assumption right that the the four policies which are on the front page of the manifesto in 2010 which is about the income tax threshold pupil premium the environment and, and voting reform when we got when the party got into government in 2010 there was an assumption that those policies being on the front page of the manifesto were key to its support and i think that's a very kind of false assumption because it's it's based on an assumption that that's what was on all of the literature all the communications doorstep communications and all the target seats across the country when when it wasn't when it was much more kind of varied and mixed but it's also kind of based on assumption that voters wouldn't remember previous policy positions say that the party had adopted so notably um iraq our opposition to the iraq war but also tuition fees so just because the party was talking less about tuition fees in 2010 but hadn't really come up publicly and said no actually we don't think these you know, this policy is, a, is affordable within the next parliament because of austerity recession etc because the party hadn't really made that that message to voters it's not unsurprising the voters still associated the lib dems with being against tuition fees in the, in the run-up to 2010. And so I that's kind of another thing misperceptions. That mm. was different then from, say, in 2019. So in 2019, the party, you know, we had a message that we were against Brexit. We also said that these are the things that we would do with the money saved instead, and mm-hmm. there were four or five policy points. And those policy points featured in nationally organised digital ads, nationally yeah. organised mail shots, nationally organised literature delivered door to door by the Royal Mail across the country. So there was a huge, in fact, it was, whatever it would have been, it'd been over £5 million worth spent on that sort of national messaging, amplifying the national policy priorities in 2010 although there was an equivalent set of four policy priorities mm-hmm. on the front page of the manifesto almost none of that happened and i think yeah. for people who are not deep into how elections are organized it's easy to miss just what a big difference it is that back mm-hmm. in 2010 your national priorities were a much smaller part of what voters heard about you as a party than yeah. you know, they are now and that as and i think that helps explain that gap that you've you've mentioned between what the party was saying centrally and what voters were hearing locally in target seats. Yeah, and also what, what as I say, and what they were remembering, I think, from, from prior, prior campaigns, because I don't think you can just kind of come in in one election and kind of remove from voters' minds everything the party's previously stood for and, and introduce kind of new policies and that that's what voters will, will associate the, the party with. But there was, but that, that assumption kind of prevailed into, into government um, so the, the strategy, such as there was, I think, in 2010, 2011, was, well, let's, let's deliver those, you know, four front, front, manifested front page pledges. Let's work on the income tax threshold, the people premium, et cetera. And let's contribute to try and be seen to contribute to the economic recovery. And that, that will see us through. That was kind of as sophisticated as the, the party's electoral strategy was during that period. And I think there were two, I guess there were three flaws in it. One, one is the one about things like tuition fees not being in there, which you've touched mm-hmm. on. One, which we should, will 
should come on to in a moment is about this not having a sense of who our voters are and who you need mm. to target and hence what we might read. But there's also another one which we should maybe mention in passing, which is one of those four was the £10,000 income tax allowance, you know, cutting yeah. income tax. And I think, you know, it was a very good policy and it delivered huge amounts of benefits. I think once you get to £10,000, there's definitely an argument that you shouldn't go beyond that, that there are better alternative priorities. But to mm-hmm. get, get it up, I think it was a really good policy to get to 10K. But fundamentally, if you're somebody who's only paying a bit of attention to politics, it's hard to argue, oh, look, a government with a Tory prime minister is cutting income tax. Look what a difference the Lib Dems have made. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just what people would have expected of a Tory government in mm-hmm. some form anyway. And OK, although David Cameron had said that he was against that particular policy, it just wasn't to say, look, we've made the Tories cut tax. <laughs> I would just yeah, sound, I, I think in retrospect, doesn't it? I think in retrospect, the other perhaps political mistake made there was not kind of doing it in, in one big chunk as much as could be allowed, mm. because even though it was raised, yeah. it was raised incrementally in several things. So in terms of people kind of noticing the difference on on their paycheck, it would have been very slight each time it was raised. Whereas if it had been a, a big leap and the big kind of communications around it, I wonder if more voters would, would have noticed it. But of course, it would have been hard for the party to win all the political credit for that as a junior partner in coalition. And also, if it had been done in one go, it might actually, the media coverage around it and the potential of a pub, the public cut through that would follow from that, you mm. know, maybe that would have been there. That if, 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 you're gonna, if you're trying to get credit for something which people might, you know, wrongly ascribe to someone else, it feels like you need a really big moment to make it really clear this is what we've done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and, and I guess in what you were saying, if, if there are any sort of real hardcore party activists listening, which I hope there are, who are around in the 2010 to 15 time, they, they might already be thinking, does this sound like Chris is thinking Ryan Curtsy did quite a good job? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, obviously Ryan has got a pretty checkered reputation, it's probably fair mm-hmm. to say, given both the 2015 election result and then the losing 2060, uh, 2016 referendum campaign and also, I guess, some of the clients that he's gone on to work for, mm-hmm. you know, in the private sector since then as well, as a slightly yeah. controversial roster. Um, but I, th- and I, I suspect I agree with you on this. I think there were some th- important things that Ryan got right in his initial approach, including mm-hmm. that sense of we need to think about the voters. But yeah. what did your research find in, in terms of Ryan's initial impact? I mean, to be honest, I've, I've really looked at sort of the tuition fee decision in, in 2010. So I don't kind of want to kind of overstate, if you like, my sort of expertise on this. Yeah. I think where, where Ryan made a really important step forward was in, in let's think about, you know, uh, the nature of the Liberal Democrat support, how these integrative policies are affecting them, what are their concerns, etc. I think perhaps the problem was by the time Brian was appointed, he was essentially left polishing the proverbial because of a lot of the damage had already been um, been done. And I think it was also kind of the other problem was trying to keep together, if you like, this unwieldy coalition of voters in these disparate seats where Liberal Democrat, uh, where Liberal Democrat MPs represented. It was quite a difficult coalition of voters, I think, to, to keep yeah. together. But I think perhaps what, what didn't really come through was whilst there was then a lot of kind of policy testing it was uh of public opinion research it was kind of testing what policies are popular amongst this market and because it was such a kind of 
uh, heterogeneous kind of coalition of voters who ended up with quite bland, centrist, managerial, technical policies that had broad support uh, amongst those voters. I don't think there was uh, so perhaps not enough research perhaps done on, if you like, values rather than just a very kind of transactional, here's a, here's a policy yeah. offering. What was the kind of wider, wider vision that the party was, was then offering at that, that point? And I think that uh, sort of that failed to, to materialise in the latter half of 2010, 2015. Yeah, and I, there was a period of time when after Ryan had been in post for a while and also there'd been some changes in Nick's, Nick Clegg's media team where there was a really good run of lo- of media coverage in many ways over a series of different policy announcements. Mm-hmm. And I remember one in particular was around extending the coastal walking paths uh, along the coast of Wales. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking on the one hand, you know, okay, this is quite good because this is popular with the Lib Dem market, you know, comes yep. out well from Ryan's polling. The party's done well at achieving a range, you know, the number of media hits. You know, whoever was in the press office that day doing the media cuttings will have thought, oh, this went well. And yeah. the story very clearly associated it with the Lib Dem. So all yeah. really good. But also, come on, the answer to bedroom tax and tuition fees is some coastal paths. Mm-hmm. You know, it just, there was, a, as you say, I think a, a missing sense of what's the underlying uh, sort of values issue that needs to be addressed. And you know, yeah. it, 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 it was just all a bit too sort of micro transactional, a bit like, you know, some of the jibes that were made about Ed Miliband, you know, that, you know, mm-hmm. vote Ed Miliband and get a free microwave that the sort of, yeah. likewise, you know, in Ed Miliband's time as Labour leader, he didn't really address the underlying weakness in how the Labour Party was perceived and therefore the transactional stuff just didn't. Yeah, I think that perhaps the party had a a poor history at that point in terms of how we actually use public opinion research. I was working on the 2012 London mayoral um, election and again, we did a public opinion research exercise where we just tested the popularity of various policy positions that that Brian Paddock could be associated with. And the ones that polled very well were ones we thought that we should be, be running campaigns on. But again, it's, you know, the ones that poll very well are the kind of the motherhood and apple pie ones that nobody's really going to um, go against. And perhaps when you're kind of the, the challenger party or the challenger candidate in, the, in a mayoral election, you needed to perhaps take some more kind of controversial positions that would, uh, yeah, that would kind of uh, inspire people a, a bit more, I guess, or just, just cut through more than things that could have been said by any politician, could have been said by, by any party, weren't, wouldn't be automatically associated with the Liberal Democrats. Yeah, and I'll include in the show notes a link to the uh, op-ed that Ryan himself wrote after the 2015 disaster, which, as I recall, the op-ed went down quite badly with activists at the time, that a lot of people yeah. felt it was he was essentially shifting the buck. You know, mm-hmm. for a disaster Jane Lake. But I think it's actually quite perceptive. And the points he makes in that, which slightly echo what we've just been discussing about there's only so much you can do if you yeah. if you don't, you know, without tackling the underlying values issue. So I, I think actually it it it's it's a better reflection on what went wrong in 2010 to 15 than maybe the audience gave it credit for at the time. Yeah. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. But I also just wanted to sort of backtrack slightly to mm. the coalition negotiations because obviously yeah. you're very much part of you know your research chris and you know the lib dem hopes are that we will 
gain seats at future general elections and that may well trigger a future hung parliament so i think it's not just a matter of history or a matter yeah. of how you can get your phd it's also a matter of practical knowledge for future lib dem negotiating teams what i think we've partly answered the question about what went wrong in respect to tuition fees in that mm -hmm. it was simply not treated as an important enough issue by yeah. the negotiating team um but nonetheless there was something that you know was put in there about how the lib dems might abstain and so on so what mm. else do you feel can be learned about what the negotiating team sort of did and didn't do on this topic. Mm. So, uh, so the first thing that we haven't kind of yet mentioned is, I was really uh, struck by how certain decisions were kind of taken, which whilst in themselves were reasonable kind of positions, when put together were completely unreasonable. And the, the key thing here is the decision around the coalition negotiations and the tuition fees, and the decision of, uh, of uh, the Democrat candidates to sign the NUS pledge not to vote for for any increase in, in tuition fees so on the on the one hand you you have the party kind of going back we, we've settled on the four front page policies in, in the manifesto this is what we're going to lead on the campaign these will be the positions that will be the, the red lines in coalition negotiations we're out of step with the other two parties on tuition fees we really want to get voting reform where we're also kind of out of step with the other two parties let's not prioritise trying to get new policy wins on the tuition fees and the coalition negotiations. That's because I'm not, you know, that's a, it's a reasonable position to, to adopt. We can debate the merits of it, but in itself it's a, it's a reasonable position. On the other hand, you have the NUS responding to the Labour Party, Labour government having commissioned the Brown Review into the future of higher education financing. Um, which was commissioned, I think, October 2009 by Peter Mandelson, and a nice ticking time bomb for the next government to have to pick up its uh, inevitable recommendation that, that fees should be increased. The NUS respond to this, asking candidates to sign pledges uh, not supporting increase in fees. Even though there's been this internal debate uh, within the, the Liberal Democrats, um, in March 2009 conference, uh, uh, the party reaffirmed its uh, commitment to abolishing tuition fees, even if it was, I think, to, to phase them out over, over time, was the compromise adopted. So candidates are approached by the NUS and they start signing this, this pledge, even some of our MPs start signing the, this pledge. And eventually the party takes a, a decision, perhaps his hand's kind of already been forced, that actually we all need to, to sign the pledge, otherwise we look out of sorts and this will create a, a media story. So again, this is a reasonable decision in itself. But what doesn't then happen is once the party, the parliamentary party in particular, have uh, made the decision that they're going to sign the pledge, they don't revisit the leader's office or the people who are involved in planning for the coalition, which of course was the, uh, the negotiation strategy was planned some months in advance. They don't revisit their position on tuition fees in any potential um, uh, coalition negotiations. So that to me is a, is, a, is a big kind of mistake because the two decisions really, really go against each other. And there's and an interesting you, parallel there, isn't there, with the 2019 general election, that although, although the 2010 and 2019 elections ended up with very different outcomes. Mm. Well, I guess they both end up with a Conservative Prime Minister, but from a Lib Dem perspective, they end up with very different yeah. outcomes. Just that sense of we've made a decision to do something, events yeah. have then, as in what our negotiating priorities are, events have then changed, have then moved on. So there's this mm. other thing that now we've been signed or photographed signing the pledge for. Yeah. And there's then a failure to go back to update that previous decision about 
negation. That feels very similar to the some of the 2019 mistakes about, for example, mm-hmm. picking a election approach and policy prospectus in terms of revoke when there was no deal it looked like it would be a choice between no deal and revoke and then when Mm. a deal was struck and it therefore became brexit with a deal versus revoke as the immediate dynamic there wasn't a right let's go back and rethink the things that we decided before this significant change of events Mm. Um, and if so it feels like that sort of weakness of strategic thinking that came out in 2019 perhaps had an echo of it in 2010 and maybe for similar reasons of in both cases it being very driven by a leader and a small team around them and therefore it's very it's much easier to make these sorts of mistakes if you've got a small team that's massively exhausted massively overworked Mm -hmm. it's so much easier to just let slip by hang on a minute that assumption that we made X weeks ago is no longer true. We've got to rethink that. Yeah, I think uh, I see what you're saying. I suppose I think perhaps the difference, like I think in, in 2019, events were, were moving at such a pace, mm. um, and I think trying to reverse the party's um, sort of messaging on, on on Brexit, not quite reverse it, but, but tweak it, etc., during the campaign after conference had adopted etc would have been very difficult i think the the issue kind of in 2010 is that yes of course people were exhausted during during the election they went straight from you know polling day into these four or five days of coalition negotiations which was very intense and difficult but there was kind of an i think there that there is an opportunity once you've kind of had the campaign and so on to just you know hey guys let's double check because we vote this negotiating strategy in december november six months before the election kind of thing was signed off there's been all kinds of um events changes since then how nick clegg performed in the debates for example it's quite possible that the assumptions about and i say i didn't even think that they they were thinking were assuming much about what was important to live then voters but it's quite possible that what was important to Lib Dem voters six months previously has changed now that we're past the election into the period of coalition negotiations and just a very quick kind of stop check of is this strategy still the right strategy every kind of element of it I think there would have been opportunities to revisit it at that point. And and you've obviously interviewed a lot of the really key people in this for your research Mm -hmm. so what's what's your take on why that missed I mean it's really you know we're acting like backseat drivers in a way yeah in terms of saying what people got wrong. So what's your take on why that mistake was made? I think I think fundamentally it's because they didn't want to revisit it. I think that we that the a lot of the the, the key decision makers, policy makers, coalition negotiators, etc., were excited at the prospect of double rights getting the government, were ex- uh, and, and excited at that prospect for the sake of delivering policies that they believed in. And I think fundamentally, we had a bunch of MPs that did not see abolishing tuition fees as policy priority. They saw it as regressive. They were not selecting or kind of prioritizing information that suggested we need, hang on a minute, is this, is going ahead with uh, going along with the Brown review the, the right thing to, to do? Um, sorry, Mark, I've lost my, my train yeah, of thoughts no, later. No, I, yeah. I think that's, I think that's, yeah. that's a very cogent answer. And, and I guess the other thing that should be said in fairness as well is, that, again, I'm trying to give sort of both sides so that yeah. can draw their own conclusions. Um, is that when it came to the special conference, 
uh, where mm. the party as a whole voted to go into coalition, there definitely was some uneasiness over tuition fees. And there was an amendment that was taken that toughened up the wording a little bit on that yeah. topic. Um, but there wasn't, you know, there wasn't a sequence of people getting up to speak to say, hang on a minute, this thing that's in the coalition agreement on tuition fees is going to be a disaster. This isn't, you know, that yeah. even people who would say been in the trenches arguing on federal committees in favour of keeping the policy to abolish tuition fees, yeah, you know, were were generally, you know, reconciled to to what had been put into the coalition agreement. And yeah. so, so I think there was a wider failure to see what this car crash might be that's coming. I, I yeah. guess one of the other reasons I would maybe add is that I think thinking about who the negotiating team was and who their key advisors were and so on, mm -hmm. there wasn't in there really anyone who would, for example, been spending the previous four weeks artworking literature for target seats yeah. in the way that if there had been, you know, somebody who had been right at the heart of target seat campaigning and message choice and literature design, yeah. who had just spent four weeks pumping out lots of stuff that mentioned abolishing tuition fees, they would have been more likely to say, well, hang on a minute, we've got a bit of a disconnect. Yeah. But I don't want to put too much on that. Because sure, and, uh, or had any of them... ...at the special conference and speak out yeah. in that way. There were some people, in fact, the late David Rendell, for example, as mm. I recall, gave quite, you know, quite an eloquent, you know, made some very eloquent points at the time. Um, but, but fundamentally, it, there was a broader failure to see uh, the car crash coming. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't just a negotiating team in that sense, was it? Yeah, you're, you're right. And, and one of the interesting things when I was looking back over this was actually how little uh, sort of the car crash was foreseen by the media during that mm. period as well. So, of course, there was, you know, huge column inches written about, you know, what was going to happen in negotiations, what the pinch points were, etc. Uh, voting reform, austerity, spending cuts, VAT, etc. And it's it's a couple of weeks before I sort of, or I found that it was not until a couple of weeks after the, the general election that I first, you first find a, a commentator writing, well, hold on a minute, this, this could kind of be, uh, you know, this could turn out being a pinch point when we actually get down to it. And I think because as well, there was this huge mood in the media and in the country the UK was not used to coalition negotiations. You'd had the uh, the Greeks, I think, had just defaulted, or, or uh, I forget, sorry, the, the exact thing that, that had happened. So there was all this... The sense that the financial markets might melt down. Well, and that yeah. was the case that some people were making, that you've got to decide really quickly, get on to have a government in place, etc. There was certainly pressure. Yeah, De definitely. So, so all the kind of focus was on kind of resolving stuff around uh, showing that a coalition could be formed, um, showing that the, the 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 government could restore confidence in the in the financial markets, resolving the the, the uh, issues on electoral reform, uh, the the really kind of tricky ones, I think. And um, you know, there was just very little in the media, in kind of if you like general public discourse about tuition fees, and that didn't kind of help. I think the the party to, to spot this potential trap in in the future because very few people were were talking about it. And and I guess part of the story as well is probably that tuition fees is not quite wasn't quite the political disaster that it's since been painted out to be. Mm -hmm. By which I mean, if you look at what happened to the party's opinion poll ratings, yeah they plummeted the moment the party went into coalition. 
Yeah. And so before tuition fees, before the bedroom tax, before NHS reforms, yeah. the party support with and so although people, you know, like on the doorsteps in twenty fifteen, very passionately and genuinely did things like quote tuition fees as a reason for not voting with them, yeah. Actually the political damage was caused before those events and that mm-hmm. things like tuition fees were not so much the cause of the you know, the twenty fifteen yeah. disaster because they happened after people had switched their votes, mm-hmm. rather they were the way in which people expressed it subsequently. Um, yeah. And and so perhaps, you know, in, in, in a way, it's um, to focus too much on why the tuition fees disaster wasn't foretold is, is maybe to ask slightly the wrong question, because the real problem was the mere act of going into coalition meant the party support hemorrhaged. And that was perhaps the thing that the party hadn't properly thought yeah. through are we actually going to do this? If we are, what do we have to be saying before polling day to have a chance of surviving if we do it? Yeah, so I think, so uh, when I kind of presented um, uh, my research on tuition fees, I kind of often get asked, oh, well, what do you think would have happened in 2015 if the party hadn't done tuition fees? And as if kind of sets out, I, I always kind of see it as a false premise because the decision-making process that led to tuition fees led, if you like, to all kinds of other um, prioritisation of, of different policies in government. You can't really kind of isolate that, that decision from decisions to, to go into coalition, decisions on austerity, VAT, etc. If you like, that the, the wider kind of failure was not kind of having a strategy. Once the party kind of decided to, to, to go into coalition, and I realise it's all happening fast and people get appointed to, to ministries, etc., but there, there wasn't really, if you like, uh, a common strategy of, of uh, uh, and kind of an electoral strategy. How do we kind of hold this co- coalition of, of support together? How do we show people um, that, we're, that we're going to deliver on the things that, that matter to them, but the key to them supporting us at, at the last election? Instead, it was kind of like, we'll, we'll go, into the, go into our departments and get on with delivering policy. Um, so you're right, if you like, that it's, um, it's, it's not just about tuition fees and, of course, the party's poll rating had plummeted beforehand. But I think there's uh, two other things where I, why I would argue that um, tuition fees might have had a larger kind of impact. Um, one is just the, the fact that it's so easy to recall, right? What, what made it actually kind of a, a good policy for the party in, in 2001, in 2005. It's a very simple, clear, understandable policy message. It kind of shows what some of your values or priorities are are about. Um, you know, as you say, it's kind of, it's easier to explain than the, the income tax threshold. But the fact then that um, easy to explain to voters means that people remember it more than um, perhaps some of the other things that were causing unhappiness in 2010, 2011. The other thing I kind of want to float with you, I mean, we actually, you know, we know very little kind of about voting behaviour, like if we're honest, because we don't really understand psychology, human decision making, that's why it's kind of so fascinating to to research. But I can remember uh, hearing uh, some researchers, they were looking at political communication strategies, it was a a Spanish paper, and they were were trying to see whether... uh, rational appeals or emotional appeals or the use of experts made a message uh, more sellable to voters and they were looking between a policy of uh, actually of investing in early years education or investing in uh, higher education university uh, abolishing university tuition fees which has uh, quite canny kind of uh, yeah. echoes for, for the Lib Dem thing but 
so it's not really about what the paper's findings between rational and emotional appeals, but what I found interesting, obviously they are, when they're trying to see if we do a rational appeal about university or an emotional appeal about early years, which one is more effective? And obviously they're controlling for gender, socioeconomic background, all the rest of it. And they control for whether or not people were parents because they thought that people who were parents would be more likely to support investment in early years education. They didn't, didn't find it had an effect. But people who'd been to university were much, much more likely to support keeping university free than early years education. Now, I mean, so to me, that's, that's fascinating. For them, this was just a, a random observation in their paper which focused on, on other things. But whenever, um, you know, I, I just kind of wonder whether there's something more emotive with voters, uh, people who've been to university and, and tuition fees than we really understand. Because as well, if you, if you think about it, whenever tuition fees were introduced, whenever they've gone up, they're student protests. But it's not necessarily rational self-interest, if you like, because it's largely by people who are already at university under the current system, not going to be affected by these policy changes. And yet people get, you know, very emotive, very worked up about it. Of course, students are more likely to engage in political process. People are, you know, students are often political. They have more time on their hands to be involved with direct action, all these, all these kind of reasons. But I do kind of wonder whether there is there is something kind of emotional about people who've benefited from this policy and seeing it taken away from, from future generations that perhaps has more more impact than we rationally expect or understand. And and I wonder if therefore the what if is not so much you know what if the Lib Dems had insisted on abolishing tuition fees, you know, <clears throat> in the coalition negotiations or whatever, but if if it had been what if the party had chosen, say, tuition fees instead of the £10,000 income tax allowance? Mm. That even if it had still been that the 10K was the thing on the front page of the manifesto and tuition fees wasn't, mm. whether in 2015 there would have been, you know, there would have been the big drop in party support anyway, because that happened mm. before any of these policy, you know, decisions yeah. got, got made. But whether in 2015 there might have been a bit of a chance of, yeah, there's a lot of stuff you did that I didn't like, but at least you got that tuition fees thing that wouldn't have mm. otherwise happened, that what, what the party was able to point to in 2015 as its achievements, yeah, too many of them were ones that were not really distinctively, yeah, clearly that would not have happened if the Lib Dems were not, you know, government. Same yeah. thing, marriage clearly one of them, and I, you know, I think yeah. a really important, you know, in, and long-term policy gain, but not not mainstream enough in that sense to 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 move enough votes i wonder mm. if tuition fees might have been the yeah but okay you did that and i quite like you as my local mp so okay i'll vote for you whether that we will never know but i guess it yeah. sounds like just to wrap up that one of the definite conclusions from your research is that need to have in your you know for decision makers to have in their mind who are the people who either vote for the party or might vote for the party yeah and what are they thinking that just thinking about the broad sense of what policy is right and the public overall yeah. is definitely has its role. But in order to be successful at elections, you need to think about who are the voters that you're going to mm. get and what is it that you're going to say to them and what do they want. And that is a really important focus to have all the way through, isn't it? Yeah, and I think if you like, if you like my sort of final two cents on, on this as well is the party sometimes jumps from one election to the next in terms of thinking about its coalition of voters, rather than that if the party wants to kind of get back into government and do all those good liberal things that, that, that it wants to do, devolve power, all the rest of it, that 
that there's a kind of longer term strategy about how the party builds up a coalition of voters who are uh, who are kind of strong enough kind of support of the party that they can withstand a coalition or a um, uh, or a could just mean supply and demand. Any sort of unparliament, yeah. Yeah, any, any kind of a, a, a arrangement like that, um, as opposed to just kind of getting getting to the maximizing the votes and the seat share at, at the next election. That perhaps a kind of longer term strategy, uh, I think, would, would serve the party well. I just might have a pamphlet that I can include a link to in the show notes on that topic. So thank you very much, Chris. That's been absolutely fascinating. Uh, people can find Chris on Twitter at Chris Butler Poll. That's Chris Butler, P-O-L. Myself at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. And please do tweet us any feedback or follow-up questions. Look out also in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed, including I will put in a link to the uh, piece of research, the article that Chris recently had published. And if you did like listening to this episode, please do tell others about this podcast or make a donation to help with the costs of running it by visiting nevermindthebarcharts.com and picking donate in the menu at the top left. Thank you very much for listening. Until next time. Thank you.